Explore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. Chapter 41 Highs and Lows 18th to the 24th of January 1978 Pakistan, Iran While staying in the grounds of the Salvation Army building in Lahore once again, we chatted with many of the overlanders who had travelled to the city in a variety of vehicles a general post office van, a Morris Minor, a Mini a converted ambulance and even a dolly wagon, as Alec referred to one old-fashioned camper van. Driving in the latter was an interesting pair, a brother and sister travelling together. Mr Burton was of average height and clean-shaven, with a full head of brown hair, which belied the fact that he was 65 years old. He was dressed in a blue and green plaid short-sleeved shirt with a knitted waistcoat, long grey trousers and black leather lace-up shoes. His sister, a few inches taller and six years older than him, was dressed in a white and green floral cotton dress, a dark green cardigan plus sturdy brown shoes. Her snowy white long hair was swept up in a tidy bun, emphasising her chubby round face and twinkling blue eyes. Alec chatted to Mr Burton about vehicles and they exchanged stories of challenges experienced on their journeys. While Miss Burton invited me into their pale yellow mobile home and put the kettle on. I felt like I was in a pensioner's cottage. It had large windows either side of the back that allowed daylight to flood the interior. The mustard yellow crimpoline curtains hung on runners and were tied back with olive green velveteen cord. When she opened the fridge, the interior looked the same as if she were in a stationary home in England. Leftovers were kept uncovered on dainty floral tea plates. Fresh fruit and vegetables were in the bottom drawer. Five eggs of varying sizes, with feathers and all, were safely lodged in an egg rack. Miss Burton took out the small china milk jug that matched the sugar bowl already on the fold-down table. She opened a packet of biscuits and placed a few on a pretty gold-rimmed plate. Four cups and saucers with teaspoons were set on the table. The kettle boiled and tea was made in a stainless steel teapot, covered with a pale pink knitted tea cosy. Miss Burton called the men in to sit with us on the yellow crimpoline-covered cushioned seats. The interior was significantly roomier to our Land Rover. Sipping tea and dunking rich tea biscuits, we listened to their travel tales. Originally, they were in business together, and after 20 years, they sold everything and went around the world. They stopped at St Kitts Island in the Caribbean, where they established a sugarcane plantation, hiring local labourers. After some years, they continued on their travels, touring America, Canada, 
and then back to England. The brother worked for a further 15 years before retiring. Next, they went on a three-month trip around Morocco and later set out on their current two-year trip to India and back. What remarkable siblings! The day was moving on and we needed to be out and about exploring Lahore. First a visit to see the Grand Badshahi Mosque with its elaborate red sandstone facade decorated with a marble inlay of floral and geometric designs. Three huge white marble embellished domes of the mosque could be seen above the outer high walls. Taller minarets of sandstone each stood at the four outer corners of the perimeter wall that surrounded the inner mosque. It was built during the reign of Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb in 1671. The mosque was located opposite the striking fort of Lahore, which unfortunately was not open to tourists that day. Walking on through the old city, the streets were narrow. You needed to be on your toes and keep your wits about you to avoid being run over by a passing tonga. A tonga was a two-wheeled canopied wooden cart pulled by a horse providing the local taxi service. Uncovered manholes were also ready to swallow you up should you put a foot wrong. At Kashmiri Bazaar, we meandered along the maze of shops that overflowed with stock. Plastic wares, suitcases and bags, fabrics and shoes in abundance. I wondered who bought all that stuff. How did the shop owners make enough money to cover their costs and a salary to live on? There was a street where every shop, one after the other, was selling brass and chrome cooking pots. In another street, all the stores sold electrical goods, televisions and radios. From a succession of food traders, I bought 12 pounds of milk powder in plastic bags, 6 pounds of oats, a pound and a half of peanut butter, a pound of toffees, 6 eggs and half a pound of butter. With the cooler weather, it was possible to keep butter in the Land Rover without it turning to oil. The Candyman store was a delight to behold, with handmade sweets in a rainbow of colours displayed in pyramids on trays. Laden with goods, it was dark by the time we looked for an auto rickshaw, but our journey was cut short when its motor conked out. Alec hailed another and we returned to the campsite, hungry for our supper, followed by Bible study and bed. Have you planned the route ahead? I asked Alec the next morning, as we ate homemade chapatis for breakfast with delicious butter and my homemade jam. Well, yes, it's all new terrain, as we will be travelling south towards Quetta. So we'll be avoiding Afghanistan altogether? I queried. Yes. The more southerly route west along here will take us directly from Pakistan into Iran, said Alec as he pointed the route out on the map. I wonder how much snow we'll be travelling through, I asked. That remains to be seen. We'll take one day at a time and deal with any challenging road and weather conditions as we come across them. It took three days to drive to Quetta via Multan, Sukkar, Shikapur 
and Jacobabad. The terrain changed from flat farmland, growing sugarcane and corn, to flat desert plains with stubbles of dry brown vegetation. Thankfully, the roads were wider with less traffic and fewer people and animals to contend with. Much of the route followed alongside the railway track, and it was terrific seeing the magnificent steam engines pulling along the passenger carriages or freight wagons. Toot toot! The smoke billowed out of their tall funnels, creating black clouds that floated in the sky, trailing behind the trains as they forged ahead to their next destinations. Our meals continued to be regular and tasty, with stops at roadside cafes and time to cook a satisfying dinner in the evening, like beef curry, dumplings and potatoes. I also successfully baked a pineapple upside-down cake in our clay dish oven. The journey took us onwards into the rugged range of the barren copper and russet-toned hills of the Bolan Pass in Baluchistan, the western province of Pakistan. On the Sunday morning, three days after leaving Lahore, we were all ready to drive on when there was a major problem with the seal between the engine water pump and the cylinder head. It had been dribbling during the previous 24 hours, but as Alex started the engine that morning, it dramatically sprayed water from under the bonnet onto the wings. Darn it, I'd hoped we'd reach Quetta before the seal burst, Alex sighed. Can you fix it? I asked. Not without a replacement seal, and can you believe it? We have a seal and gasket for every part of the engine, but not that one. Well, what will you do? Good question. I'll take it to pieces and see what I can come up with, Alec said hopefully. For three hours, Alec worked outside in the bitter cold. He masterfully reshaped a rubber seal from our drinking water purifier spares to replace the perished one in the engine. I made peanut butter japati butties and mugs of tea to keep us warm. Here goes. Alex switched on the engine and then climbed out of the Land Rover to check the exposed modified seal. Thumbs up. Hooray! I clapped enthusiastically and gave him a kiss. Well done, Alec. You're a star mechanic and improviser. The seal held, not a drop of water to be seen anywhere around the engine. Alec pulled down the heavy bonnet with satisfaction. He packed away the tools and either kitchen items. We were eager to leave that remote, wild location in the Bolan Pass, for it was no place to linger. Twenty-seven miles further on, we arrived at the modern town of Quetta. It was quite different to other towns we had visited, with its orderly, clean streets and calm traffic. The shops were more enclosed and only hand-cut stores were outside along the streets, which was just as well as it was bitterly cold. I bought two aerograms from the post office and then we found a charming tea room like what you find back in England, with smart wooden tables with curved back wooden chairs. We sat near to the big window to watch the world go by as we drank tea from fine china teacups and wrote our letters. 
Alec wrote one to his former boss at the British Antarctic Survey Office in Cambridge, England. He asked him if he would provide a reference for any Twin Otter aircraft maintenance job that Alec hoped to be offered when we returned home. My aerogram to Dad, our base manager, was on a practical note too, asking if he could arrange for our medical insurance to be extended. Naturally, I gave him and Mum an update on what we'd been doing since I last wrote in Lahore. I looked up from my writing and saw two disabled men, whose legs were amputated mid-thigh, pass by the window. They were warmly dressed and each sat on tiny wooden boxes that were set on four wheels. The men propelled themselves along with their mittened hands, scooting along the paved road, a precarious venture that gave them a degree of independence to be admired, but surely there could be a better way. After an hour in the tea room, we returned to the post office to mail the letters and then drove south out of Quetta. We passed a sign, London, 5,886 miles. It felt curiously heartwarming to see the name of our capital city emblazoned in the outback of a former part of the British Empire. It was as if the ties with our homeland were not totally discarded by the authorities there. Talking of authorities, we were not far out of Quetta when we were halted at a customs post. The smart uniformed officer took our vehicle papers and passports for documentation into his roadside office. All was in order and Alec was given permission to drive on. The uneven road took us out of the hills and down into the wilderness of a vast desert region where nomads dwelt in their tents. As dusk fell, they shepherded their flocks of sheep and herded their camels back to camp. We parked for the night beside the sandbanks, not far from the railway track, and I cooked dinner and baked a fruit cake. A steam train trundled along. The illuminated carriages highlighted the silhouettes of passengers travelling towards Iran. The night was cold so we took advantage of the warmth generated by the cooker and went to bed early. Contented and cosy, we fell asleep. What did they want? I asked Alec as he climbed back into the Land Rover the next morning. Two bearded, turbaned and warmly dressed men had ridden up the road together on a single bicycle to speak with Alec. He was in the midst of doing his daily pre-flight check of the Land Rover. They shook hands and greeted Alec before cycling off down the road back towards Quetta. Oh, nothing, as far as I could make out. Seems they just stopped by to see if all was well. Maybe they thought we had broken down as you had the bonnet up. Could be, Alec agreed. Are you finished clearing up yet? We have a long journey today and we need to get going if we want to reach the border by this evening. All right, all right, hold your horses. I just need to empty the washing up bowl outside and pull the roof down, I declared. Alec had already climbed into the driving seat and turned on the engine, chumping at the bit. As it was, our journey of over 250 miles to the border took us through barren desert with mountains away in the distance. The sandy ground turned to a gravel plateau, mile upon mile of nothingness.
tiny villages were few and far between. How did anyone survive in such desolate terrain? We came across a parked Land Rover and a Ford Transit van. Twenty Dutch overlanders had been travelling together for four months. They had been to Nepal and then to Goa in southern India and they hoped to reach the Netherlands in three weeks. The tour leader and his right-hand man, a mechanic, were trying to fix burnt-out wires in the Land Rover's engine compartment. Meanwhile, everyone else was milling around, looking travel-weary. There was not much we could do, so we made haste and drove on while there was still light. We had tested the fruitcake at lunchtime. It was a bit burnt on the bottom, but otherwise edible. For supper that night, I boiled potatoes, reconstituted a meat bar with onions and peas, and stewed fruit and cooked milk pasta for dessert. It had been an unusually plain day, just travelling from A to B. I felt rather travel-weary myself. It was almost a year since we had set out on our adventure, and now it had become a normal way of life. You're looking glum, Jan. What's wrong? Alec remarked as he looked up from perusing a map of Iran. Oh, I don't know. Today's been long and monotonous. It's cold and my feet are freezing. So, you don't feel like you're in a movie right now? No, they miss out the humdrum bits. Well, tomorrow we can look forward to a possible tense scene going through the Iranian customs. Oh yes, that could be nail-biting stuff, I said in jest, hoping for an easy passage into Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi's oil-rich kingdom. Alec cuddled up real close that night, warming my bones and driving the blues away from my mind. The next day showed promise. The sun had shown up and I was feeling warm and even overdressed in my jeans and toasty sweater. It was just a ten-mile drive to the Pakistan border control. The customs official scouted the Land Rover for drugs banged on the bodywork and looked underneath. He tried to cadge a packet of razor blades before he documented the vehicle details. The passport official duly stamped our passports to prove that we had left the country and we were given a gate pass to go under the raised barrier, out into no man's land. To reach the Iran border, we travelled a further 75 miles along terrible roads with torturous corrugations across the flat gravel plateau. Whenever Alec could, he drove off-road where the surface was smoother, but it proved time-consuming, as he snaked between the coarse shrubs, aware that they could become tangled in the wheels. The Iranian border post was a collection of smart buildings with the railway track running between. A train had just pulled in, and the passengers alighted to have their documentation and baggage checked. We parked the Land Rover alongside a few other vehicles and were directed to the quarantine office, a huge empty room painted green. An olive-skinned man in a white clinical jacket vetted our vaccination certificates, passed them back and nodded for us to go. No extra jabs for us, thank goodness. Next to the passport office, where the officials wore smart uniforms with big peaked caps. 
The lapels on their jacket shoulders were adorned with the gold braid of rank to give weight to their self-importance as they delighted in being in control. Our passports were found to be in order and stamped accordingly to show we had permission to be in Iran. But it was not the quarantine or passport officers that made us a touch edgy. It was the customs officers. A bearded young man dressed in a navy blue suit came across to the Land Rover, looked it up and down and said, I'm off to eat my lunch now. Drive your vehicle over there and park across the pit. While I'm away, you can empty every part of this vehicle. I will inspect it thoroughly on my return. Alec followed his orders and positioned the Land Rover over the pit for a full inspection. The wind cut across the vast countryside, which was empty and desolate apart from the train, a few vehicles and the buildings. As it blew, it covered everything in its path with a layer of dust. Our things will get filthy if we get them all out now, I said to Alec. I dare say his lunch break will be a leisurely one. We could be waiting a couple of hours. Well, we know we're not hiding any drugs or weapons. Let's pray the Lord will work it out and we'll just empty the roof box. I placed our plastic tablecloth on the earth as Alec climbed up onto the bonnet and stood on the spare wheel to unpadlock and unlatch the box. Item by item, he passed the contents of our wooden storage box down to me. Our possessions were displayed for all to see, just like a jumble sale. It was early afternoon and three long-haired white youths were having their personal things removed from their backpacks and checked by another customs guy at a long table under an awning. He was rough and clumsy and a camera dropped to the ground. The owner picked it up and checked for damage. I wondered how it would be when the other customs officer looked through our things. An hour later he showed up looking bleary-eyed after his lunch and nap. He muttered to us that we had not removed everything. We said nothing. Just let him get on with his job, poking through the cupboards beneath the bench seat, under the bonnet, and then down the steps into the pit to examine under the chassis. Next he climbed up onto the spare wheel on the bonnet and looked into the empty roof box and then rifled through its contents back down on the ground. What's this here? he asked, tapping the wood frame along the roof. It's an elevating roof, Alec replied. Show me! Alec unlatched the exterior catches while I climbed inside the Land Rover and pushed the roof up into place. The officer climbed in for the second time and swept the back of his hand all over the insulating fabric of the curved, aluminium surface. He checked on top of our worktop, running his fingers along the channel at the back. He found nothing suspicious and nonchalantly left and moved on to check the next vehicle. I packed away the things he'd removed from the kitchen cupboards while Alec went into the customs office to complete the documentation with the chief officer. It took a while to repack the roof box as it was a jigsaw puzzle fitting everything in. We wound our watches back an hour. 
We were glad to gain the extra time to drive that afternoon far away from the border officials into Iran. Phew, that wasn't so bad after all, Alec remarked. Thank God, that siesta did him wonders, I smiled. Total distance driven, 33,055 miles. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More. Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com.